Hello, this is Real Estate Insights, the podcast from Savills that explores the property world from every angle and keeps an open mind while it's doing it, which is good because today we're looking at the world of biodiversity gain. This is all about finding the optimum economic setting within the need to also invest in the environment. And we'll be asking, is this something landowners can take advantage of? There's definitely an income stream relating to a different form of land management to traditional agriculture. I'm Guy Ruddle and with me are two people perfectly equipped to answer that and other questions. Emily Norton is Head of Rural Research at Savills and a Real Estate Insights regular. Emily, lovely to see you again. It is a joy to be here. And John Dearsley leads Savills' food and farming team in the Sirencester office and is a leading expert on biodiversity gain, which is a good thing. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's get going. Can we start with a basic question? What is, Emily biodiversity gain. So what we are talking about here is the way that when a new housing development or infrastructure development goes into the countryside, it has an impact on the environment. And what we can do is quantify that impact uh, and the impact that it's having on the loss of uh, wildlife, on the loss of habitats in that space, uh, and come up with a number. And the biodiversity gain principle, which has recently been included in legislation, says that uh, there should be money taken out of the development uh, and put into delivering a 10% increase on the amount of the impact that was caused to start with. So it's not just sort of replacing what you destroy, it's replacing what you destroy plus 10%. Absolutely. So it's all about um, you need some clever people to come in and do a very specific site survey to look at what's there to start with, come up with a management plan and say, how do we deliver 10% more uh, than what we've damaged through creating the development? And John, is, is this a voluntary thing that's going on? Or, you know, is, is it? Emily mentioned a new law. Where, where are we in terms of the forcing people to do it? So this is a concept that's been around for quite a long time now. And um, we've seen it in bats and newts and lots of people are familiar with that, especially in any planning work. I think the bit that's really exciting now is we've had for a while voluntary schemes. So certain uh, developers have been saying, we feel that it's important to do this because it's the right thing to do. And that's now being followed up by the legislation. So actually going to be a situation in law where every new development will have to meet these criteria. Because that's so all of a sudden alarm bells ring. That's a big change, right? That you know, if, if everyone absolutely has to do it, presumably then you get a proper infrastructure into the whole how do you calculate it all type thing. There's a bit at the moment where we're very new to this, yeah. So 77 out of 340-odd English planning authorities have been doing it voluntarily, and some of the major house builders across the country have been doing it voluntarily as well. But DEFRA, the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, who's sort of leading on this kind of initiative, have now come up with this metric. So it formalises the process through which it all happens, and then you create the system through, uh, through which planning has to um, deliver on biodiversity gain and suddenly it all sort of falls into place and, and the developers know where they are and the landowners know where they are and you can start to see how um, the investment can come out and start really delivering for the environment. We've talked then about how you have to replace what you destroy plus 10%. What's the mechanism, John, for doing that replacement? 
So the, the way we've seen this um, structured in the usual situation is about creating a 30-year management plan. So the, Emily refers to the ecologists who come and do the baseline survey. They understand what habitats we should be creating. So if we're losing arable land, we should be trying to have an arable land type of environment. If we're having a grassland, we should try and replace it with the grassland type environment. Uh, and so actually by creating these 30-year environment plans, people are able to manage a particular field parcel, 10 acres, 20 acres, 30 acre block to create specific outcomes. Go on. I was just going to say, I think the really important point to make there about biodiversity gain is that it doesn't allow development to happen in very valuable places. So if you've got a a very protected landscape, a triple SI or a piece of ancient woodland, and and the pressure is there to to deliver houses locally, it's not about this making it okay to trash that environment. This is about to start with taking that into account. You have to avoid the impact on those very sensitive places to start with. And secondly, when you go to site plan, to plan where the houses are going to be built, you have to try and take into account as much biodiversity delivery within that as possible. And it's only when you've done all of those steps that you finally begin to quantify what you can't protect or deliver on site. You have to then look at where you can deliver that off site. Okay. But so so I fully understand this. I'm... Bob the Builder Enterprises, and I'm building a development of 150 homes and a warehouse or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I know that, I, you know, and, and it's been calculated that I'm going to do the, the X much damage in an X much way, Y much way to the environment. It's not me, is it, that's going to then f- somewhere else replace that damage? Or, or is it me? I mean, is it me as Bob the Builder that's expected to go and plant, a, 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 you know, 20 hectares of, of arable farming land. I think it can be down to a number of different scenarios, and this is where the marketplace will take uh, the most cost-effective route. There will be some situations where small housing developers or small housing developments might choose to pay a credit or buy a government-backed credit or buy into an existing environment bank, so where people have already created these setups and they will go and buy a percentage slice of those. I think for the bigger developments, maybe the 150 home, maybe the 1,000 home, maybe the 2,000 home, um, I can see situations where developers will want to just to keep control and speed of delivery and being cost effective, they will want to get out and de- develop these sites themselves. So, you know, from your perspective, you can fix it. You are Bob the Builder. But, uh, the that point, is excellent. Well done, Emily. The, the point being that you're also a builder. You're not a specialist in environmental delivery. And so it makes much more sense to you if you concentrate on delivering the types and quality of homes that people want that fit within your your plan to deliver um, those those new homes to people without it costing a lot of money. So this is all about finding the optimum economic setting within the need to also invest in the environment. And so the work that we've been doing and looking at the numbers behind all of this, trying to do some sort of scenario planning on how it might all play out, it makes it seem like it's going to be much better for you as Bob the Builder to be having an agreement with a a local farmer or a local landowner who can specialise in, in investing in the environment, investing in environmental delivery, because that's what they're really good at. So it does make a lot of sense to have that relationship off farm rather than you, for example, having to go and buy land in order to deliver this. It, that would be even more expensive for you. It's more uh, yeah. cost effective to improve the environment somewhere else. And presumably, <clears throat> we're going to end up in a, in, a, in a similar world to the carbon world of, of being able to buy, would you be able to buy like actual credits that or, or whatever from from a farmer and say, look, this farmer has agreed to plant, you know, whatever, uh, 
because I'm going to give him some money to do that, and that gives me the credit so that I don't have to do it myself. Is that is that how it, how it's going to work? Uh, absolutely. So you know, you will have an accredited unit, a biodiversity unit, and they can be bought and sold. Um, and the point being is is that it will probably be more effective. If you look at the Lawton principle to build bigger biodiversity sites in one go, but actually that offset from a small five-unit housing site might not necessarily want to buy into a big scheme. So it has this ability to trade individual units in little ways. But the thing that's particularly interesting about this as well is is the carbon problem. You know, carbon within a farmed landscape, within fields, and, you know, um, it's very difficult to measure how much carbon is there. But actually, because what we're talking about in terms of biodiversity gain, it's all things that are visible. You can see if it was previously a cultivated field and you've put some semi-improved um, or good quality grassland in there, um, so very species-rich habitat grassland reintroduced to that landscape, you can see it. It's very easy to go there and see what benefit you've had. So quite quantifying it and therefore verifying it and making sure that people who have paid for it know what they've got is much easier. Carbon is incredibly difficult because we can't can't really see where it's being stored. It's okay if it's a tree, but we can't really cover everything in trees. It means you can't still use that landscape for other things. So we think this sort of uh, biodiversity gain scheme is going to be particularly interesting to farmers and landowners because they can still use the land for other things. I think that Sorry, a bit to add on to that, which is really interesting, is that whilst it may not be defined at the moment, a lot of the things we're talking about could be proxies for other situations. So actually, if you take arable land and revert it to grasslands, the chances are you're capturing some carbon. Now, you may not be being paid for that at this point, but if you set yourself a baseline survey, you could effectively layer up so you could have multiple benefits from one site. And a sort of thought has just occurred to me that you you could look at this uh, as a burden for developers and the like. But does it get round what I call the crested newt problem? You mentioned newts earlier, the crested newt problem where, you know, endless bits of development get stopped because someone says, oh, it's going to, you know, ruin the habitat for a crested newt. Uh, and, and actually, does this make it easier for developers in a world? Because you can say, well, don't worry about that. We'll, we'll put some crested newts somewhere else. So there's two ways to look at this. Can't believe I just said that sentence, but go on. <laughs> There's two ways to look at this. One is absolutely that it facilitates the delivery of better quality habitat, which is what this countryside so desperately needs. You know, there's so many places where better management would improve the biodiversity outcome. So on the one hand, there's a, there's a big advantage. On the other hand, we shouldn't be allowing development to happen in places where it really shouldn't. And so there are situations where legitimately um, a biodiversity impact is irreplaceable should rightly hold up that kind of situation. What we envisage with biodiversity gain is that there are maybe situations in the middle where having this money coming out of the planning system to invest in environmental outcomes does make the whole process a lot easier um, in terms of understanding and quantifying those impacts. So people are confident that as well as the uh, economic progress and and the better quality homes that we're able to build for people, that the environment that the environment is benefiting as well. And an important point there about the um, legislation that backs this up is we've now got something called uh, local nature recovery strategies. So actually these strategies will allow people to have a planned way about how they manage the environment in a certain area rather than the sort of slightly piecemeal bat or nuke protection we've seen to date. I'm no genius, but even I can work out that if uh, money is going from developers for me bob the builder to somebody else somebody else is going to gain so john presumably your clients landowners farmers etc this is potentially a benefit for them 
there's definitely an income stream relating to a different form of land management to traditional agriculture. And I think, you know, we can't underestimate there will be there will need to be investment for, the, for these sites to exist. They don't create themselves. They don't look after themselves. But absolutely, you know, when I'm working with my clients, I want to have as many different cherries in front of them and be able to have as many different bites as possible. And I think having, you know, conventional agriculture and environmental land management scheme, as well as things like solar or development in front of them, you know, that's a, a multiple slice of the cake. Yeah. And will they have to do certain things or behave in certain ways to really get the benefit? Absolutely. So everything will be controlled by management plan, which is agreed between the developer and between the farmer and between whoever likely is to be in charge of the local nature recovery strategy to ensure that the deal is meeting everybody's expectations. And then it will be monitored during that time. So, you know, this is not free money. This is not money for doing nothing. This is absolutely about investing in environmental outcomes. And if that management plan is not being reached, well, it's a contractual issue between the landowner um, and who, whoever the deal has, has been with, either the developer directly or through the local council. So, you know, what it what it achieves is is a new source of investment in the environment. And I think for that reason, uh, farmers are going to be interested in it. Landowners are going to be interested in it. And um, local conservationists are going to be interested in it as well. OK, so we'll do the Savile Standard statistic in a moment. But just before we do, I want to go way back. John, you said Lawton's Law earlier. Lawton Principle. Lawton Principle. What's the Lawton Principle? <laughs> So Sir John Lawton did um, this big review of um, UK Habitat and he came up with this principle that what we've got at the moment as a result of roads and communities and urban spaces and the way that agriculture works within the landscape is very fragmented, valuable habitats. And so you might have a pocket of ancient woodland, but it's a long way away from other connected sites. And so he came up with this idea of bigger, better and more joined up. So it's expanding what's already there. It's improving the quality of it. But most importantly, it's developing the corridors between it. And that's why local nature recovery strategy would be really good because it would look at a map of where those valuable sites are and then work out where you can start linking them together in order to provide more space for for, um, wildlife and for biodiversity. There's no such thing as a stupid question as long as it gets a clever answer. Sorry, I sounded a bit patronising there for a second. <laughs> Let's do the Savile Standard Statistic, which, of course, is obligatory uh, in this uh, in the Real Estate Insights podcast. You've both been warned about this, right? You've got one ready. Um, I think, John, uh, Emily is so keen that I'm going to make her wait. So what is your, John, what is your Savile Standout statistic? Well, we're talking a lot here about development. And one of the big development projects at the moment will be at the Oxford Cambridge Arc and the proposal of a million new homes in that space. I think what's really, really interesting is when we model the biodiversity gain that might be required on that site is you're looking at something like 68,000 hectares within the corridor. So to put that in perspective, you're looking at 8 to 10% of the existing land area there. So this is not small scale change. This is massive uh, land management undertaking. And if you're a regular listener to Real Estate Insights, you'll know that a few weeks ago we did a whole episode on the Oxford Cambridge Innovation Arc. Emily, what is your Savile standout statistic this time? My Savile standout statistic is that the value of UK land has been estimated to be about £250 billion. Pounds, But if you take into account its natural capital valuation, and when we say natural capital, we're talking about all of those different services like environmental delivery, like biodiversity, like habitats, carbon, uh, flood storage, all of those things we've been talking about today, you get up to a value that's very close to one trillion pounds. I like that. 
any, anything that gets to a trillion pounds is a number I like. Guys, thank you so much for that. That is absolutely, I know I say this almost every time, that was absolutely fascinating. Well, at least I found it fascinating, and that's the main thing. Thank you very much for being here, Emily, again, and John for the first time. That's it for this episode of Real Estate Insights. If you want to find out more and just can't keep away from this topic, well, then there's the Savills blog, which you can find on the Savills website, savills.co.uk slash research. Uh, Emily blogs on there a lot, I know for a fact. If you're not a subscriber and would like to become one so that you can get other episodes like the Oxford Cambridge Innovation Arc episode, then please feel free to become a subscriber. You can do so using your usual podcast provider. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening and see you next time. This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. Savills accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of, reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content. Savills makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast. This podcast and all copyright in this podcast is the property of Savills and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without Savills' prior written consent.